Good morning. How are we all this morning? Well, some of you are okay. Um, It is wonderful to be with you today. This day has been a long time coming and I've been really excited about this day and I'm so pleased that I can be with you today. I can preach on this passage um, and I can get to know you all and we can begin uh, the next chapter of this journey together. Before I start speaking, I'd like to say a massive thank you to all of you who have welcomed us in various ways over the last few weeks. Um, We are all looking forward to getting to know all of you, but thank you for those that have welcomed us already. Before I start speaking, let me pray. Father God, as we meet today, I pray that we would hear your voice. I pray that this wouldn't be about me, but this would be about you. Amen. So, this week was my first week as vicar here. Everything was a bit new. I had no idea who anyone was or how anything works, and to say the truth, I still don't. Uh, But on Monday morning, it came to me to pick the passage that I would be speaking from today. And there were lots of options that went through my head, but in the end, I decided to pick Isaiah 41, the passage that we have just heard Now, it was on Wednesday that I was told that Christchurch has a weekly email. I'm sure you all get it, you all read it, you all study it. I'm sure it's the the best part of your week. Anyway, your weekly email contains the verse of the year for Christchurch. It wasn't until Thursday that I found out what that verse of the year actually was for this church. And it turns out that, as I'm sure you all know because you've remembered your verse of the year by heart... Yes, Uh, the your verse of the year is the last verse of Isaiah 40. I did not know this when I was preaching on, uh, picking the passage to preach on. So this year you've been maybe reflecting on, maybe thinking about, maybe memorising, or maybe just having Isaiah 40 just randomly appear in your inbox at various points. Today, without me planning it, we turn to the next chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 41. And it seems that sometimes God just seems to join up the pieces. Now, as I start here this week, I realise that there are many previous chapters in the life of this church. And this week we start a new one together. And as we begin this new chapter together, I hope that maybe Isaiah 41 brings in some of the foundational plot lines of where this chapter as a church may be going. I hope that maybe Isaiah 41 might map out something of a blueprint for this church's next steps. And as we turn from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 41, I hope that we remember the good from previous chapters. We find freedom from that which haunts us in previous chapters. And we look forward to the story that's about to unfold. Isaiah 41 is set with the people of God just about to enter exile, or maybe they've just recently arrived. They've lost their homes, they've lost their land, they've lost everything they hold dear, they've lost peace, and everything that was familiar to them. And they're wondering, in this time, maybe they've even lost God. 
Isaiah 41 is from a part of Isaiah that gives hope to God's people. Hope that they have a future and hope that God will save them. And the passage we heard today contains three different pictures that we're going to look at together. Three images that I hope will shape us both as individuals and as a church. Can we have the next slide? The first image is a picture of a servant who belongs to a great master. When I was roughly around six years old, my mum took me on a shopping trip to Tesco's. Now, I was getting dragged around on the weekly shopping trip. I know some of your, you may inflict that on your children. Uh, my children, one of them has banned us taking them on the weekly shopping trip. But anyway, and it was one of those shopping trips that my mum had the big trolley. So you know that's going to take a long time to get round on this shopping trip. So I'm, as a six-year-old, holding on to the side of the big trolley. And my mum's walking along the aisles. She's filling the shopping basket. And she stops at this one aisle and she puts something in the shopping basket. And just for a moment, I get distracted by the great offers on mayonnaise. Six-year-old, love mayonnaise. Get distracted. Great offer on mayonnaise. Transfixed by those yellow markers saying three for two. Now, I quickly snap out of my mayonnaise trance and I grab back hold of the trolley and, we start, and I start following the trolley round again. And after a few seconds, I look back to my mum who's pushing the trolley. But there's a small problem here. My mum now has a beard. She has grey hair, she has glasses and she appears to have changed clothes. And in those few moments, I am filled with fear. Where is my mum? Have I lost her? Has she abandoned me? Has she left me? Has she gone back home? Will I ever find my mum again? So I frantically look up and down the aisle and, and she's just a little bit further down the aisle. But this is one of my earlier memories that I remember and it's because at this moment I felt the fear of being lost and abandoned. At the same time that this bit of Isaiah was written, there was another book written at the same time called Lamentations. And the whole book of Lamentations finishes with these three verses. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. The Israelites at this time were scared that God had abandoned them. Humans have always been scared of being abandoned. We all have this deep human fear. Do they even care if I exist? Do they love me? Do they want me? Will they stick around when life gets tough? This fear is felt holding a trolley in Tesco. In relationships, in friendships, in family, in society. And the Israelites experienced this fear with God. The Israelites were scared that God had left them. That he'd discarded them, he'd washed his hands of them and that God had abandoned them. And into this fear, God says this. You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear For I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. God says that he has chosen them. The literal translation of the word servant is slave, someone who has no rights or no power. Yet God has chosen the Israelites. Slaves do not choose their masters, masters choose their slaves. God chose his people. His people only responded to that choice. And God tells the Israelites who have lost their homes and their land that they've not been rejected, that God is with them and that he is still their God. And these words that God said two thousands of years ago echo into today. They echo into our life as a church. A lot has happened here over the last 18 months or so, and I've been an outsider to most of it. But God's words to us as a church are, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. In the good times and in the bad, when we feel confident and when we feel scared, God's constant whisper to this church is, I am with you. I am with you. And what is true for us as a church is also true for us as individuals. One of the deepest human fears is to feel abandoned, to be unlovable, to be worthless. It's easy to sometimes think that God is not with us, that God couldn't love someone like us, and God doesn't really care about us. But the same words that God spoke to Israel, he also utters to us. You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Whatever has happened in our life, whatever has been done to us, whatever we have become, whatever our fear, God's constant whisper to you is, I am with you. I am with you. In verse 10, God tells the Israelites that I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's right hand will sustain and protect and support his people. Yet what of God's left hand? Well, in verse 13, it says, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. To hold our right hand, God would use his free left hand. The image is of a parent and a child. In God's right hand, he will protect and fight for us. But in his left hand, he holds onto his child. God does not simply help from a distance, but he is here. He is with us, holding onto our hand, constantly whispering to us, I am with you. I am with you. In life, we may let the trolley go and find ourselves disorientated and scared. But God never lets go of us as a church and as individuals. In the first image, God doesn't just tell us not to be afraid. 
He grasps hold of our hand and says, I held your hand before you held mine. I will not let go of your hand even if you let go of mine. I am with you always. Can we have the next slide? Now I wonder if any of you, when you were younger, cut a worm in half. Any, 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 anyone want to admit? To, yeah, well, we've got a couple of honest people, or a few honest people in the congregation. Now, I'm sure you know, if you cut a worm in half, you kind of get two flailing bits of worm that kind of flap around everywhere. Now, as a child, I thought you got two worms. You cut a worm in half, you get two worms. Isn't that wonderful? As an adult, I thought, well, it looks like you get two worms, but actually you've just killed a worm. But after a little bit of Googling, I found out depending on the type of worm, if you cut a worm in half, you might actually get two worms. So why am I talking about worms? Well, in the second image, God calls his people a worm. Now, I think there are more flattering descriptions he could have used, but God calls the Israelites a worm. If someone calls me a worm, this is just a heads up. If someone calls me a worm, I'm probably going to be mildly insulted. But in this passage, worm is not meant as an insult. Rather, it's meant to describe Israel's mortality, fragility and powerlessness. Just like those worms couldn't do anything uh, when I as a child attacked them with a spade. So God's people are fragile. And in this picture, the worm is confronted by mountains and hills, these impossible barriers. How is a worm going to get through mountains and hills? They're so small compared to the obstacles that lie ahead. But God says he will make the Israelites into a threshing sledge. I'm sure you all know what a threshing sledge is, obviously. A threshing sledge was an ancient combine harvester, but it is way more excited than a combine harvester. And I think combine harvesters are pretty exciting. So wait till you hear about a threshing sledge. So imagine a sledge that you can go downhill on when it's snowing. Everyone got that picture in your head? Brilliant. But you stand on it like a surfboard. Already sounds a little bit exciting. And it's pulled by a cow. I mean, I think that would make a great sport. Threshing sledge racing. I would YouTube that all day. So threshing sledges were used to separate grain from straw like combine harvesters do today. But in this passage, God says that he will make the worm into a threshing sledge and the worm will cut its way through the mountains and the hills. The church in this country faces obstacles. The churches in Southport face barriers. Christ Church faces mountains that lie ahead of us. We face things in our own life where it seems impossible to find a way through. Yet no obstacle or barrier is too big for God. No mountain or hill is too high for God. No wall or situation is too strong for God. God can always make a way. And my question for us as individuals and for us as a church is, do we actually believe that? 
Sometimes it's easy to believe that God can do the little things. He can help us over those little speed bumps in life. But when we're confronted with mountains, we lose faith. We stop trusting and we generally try to climb over them ourselves. God can always make a way. Don't try and climb a mountain when God can carry you through it. I wonder what mountains this church are facing at this moment. And I wonder what our response to them is. And I wonder what mountains you might be facing in your life at the moment. Do you trust that God can make a way through them? Can we get the next slide, please? The final image in the passage from Isaiah 41 speaks of a desert. Total wilderness where people can't survive, where people can't find water, where life does not grow. And in this desert, people are thirsty. And this thirst represents human needs, physical emotional and spiritual. Every need that we have as a human is represented by this thirst. And the question is, how does humanity meet our needs? Humans have two choices. Either we provide for ourselves, we become self-sufficient, we aim for independence, and in the face of the desert, we try and build wells and plant our own trees. Or we can rely on God. We can become needy people. We can aim for dependence. In the face of the desert, we can call out to God and trust that he will answer. The world will tell us that the aim of life is to be self-sufficient. To get to a place where you don't need to rely on anyone else for your needs. Where happiness is found by creating a life where we can take care of all our own physical, emotional and spiritual wants. A world where we don't need God to find life, happiness, love, peace or purpose. God can simply be an added extra that we take or we leave. Yet this picture of a desert tells the Israelites that it is God who provides for their needs. Not just that, it is God who transforms this desert into a garden, transforms a wasteland into paradise, transforms death into life. It's a picture that says however many wells we try to dig, however hard we try to look for water, however much we try to provide for our own needs, wherever we work hard to find happiness and peace, we will still be in a spiritual desert. Maybe in our striving we will find a little bit of water. Maybe we'll find a plant or a tree. Maybe at some, some moments we'll feel secure, but we are still in a desert. It is only the creator who can transform a desert into a garden. It is only the creator who can take our life and breathe new life into it. We all too easily settle for a life in a desert when we could live life in a garden. And as we think about this church and about Southport, it is God and God alone who can transform it. I cannot transform this church or Southport.
I am not the hope of this church or the hope of Southport. We cannot transform this church or Southport. It is God who creates new life from our bruised souls. It is God who takes our broken dreams and voices them into life. It is God who feels our pain and holds our hand until we feel safe. It is God who takes this community and makes it more than a random bunch of people who meet every so often. It is God who looks out over Southport and sees a different future. It is God who transforms, constantly creating new gardens from old deserts, life from death. I wonder where in your life or in Southport needs transformation. Where are you searching for water or seeing others searching? And I wonder where do you expect to find it? Can we have the next slide? This passage finishes in verse 20 with a so that. This transformation, this desert to garden does not happen so that we have everything we need and can live our own happy life. It doesn't happen so that a church can stay inside its four walls, never needing to worry about anything else again. God being with us, God making a way through mountains, God providing, creating and transforming is so that People may see and know. Israel is to become the living evidence of God on this earth so that people may see and know God. The church is to become the living evidence of God on this earth so that people may see and know God. We are to become the living evidence of God on this earth so that people may see and know God. God's purpose for Israel, for the church and for our lives, goes beyond us. You have a purpose. Christ Church has a purpose. To be transformed people and a transformed community so that people can see and know God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to show the world who God was in the flesh, to tell the world that God had not abandoned them, but that the world can know God. And Jesus gave that mission to his followers, be transformed by God and go into the world and let them understand that God can be known, that God is close that God actually does stuff in this world, that God cares, that God is not against them. And as we begin a new chapter together, may this chapter tell of a church that sees and knows God is with us. May it tell of a church that sees and knows God can make a way through any mountain. May it it tell of a church that sees and knows God will provide. May it tell of a church that sees and knows God transforms people, communities and even towns. 
And may it tell of a church that does not hide inside these four walls, but shows the people of Southport that God has not abandoned them, but that he can be known. Let me pray.